morning. How many of you in high school and college, history was your absolute favorite subject? (laughs) Okay, a few of you. I expected a few hands. For some reason, I did not expect that to be the overwhelming majority of our congregation. But I want to talk about history a little bit this morning, and Paul goes to history a little bit this morning. Now, those of you that don't like history, don't check out, okay? Stay with me, because history actually does matter. It's our our title for this morning. We saw Benjamin Netanyahu give a speech to Congress regarding Israel. And if you notice, one of the things that he referred to throughout that speech was history and, and Israel's history. And I was reading this week about, about some of that history and some of the atrocities that happened in that history. And in 1933, Dachau was the Nazis' first concentration camp just after Hitler came to power. And if you look at some of the records, it wasn't the one where the most people died, but it was the first. It started the ball rolling. But there were still records of at least 32,000 prisoners that were killed during its 12 years' existence. Historians agree, though, that tens of thousands more were interned there and then shipped to different camps where they were executed. Or the term they used was eradicated. Many more than that were even executed at Dachau and their names were never recorded. Send chills up and down your spine. If you go there now... They, they have a museum and a memorial for those that were killed there and, and to remember. And one of the inscriptions is a, an inscription that we're familiar with by Harvard philosophy prof George Santayana. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And can you imagine being at that place where so many people were killed and reading that plaque? Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And it's a, it's a, a signpost that says never again. This won't happen again. We will not forget. Well, in our Christian lives, we have a history. We have a recorded, re- recorded examples of things that we should never forget. Mistakes that have been made in our history, in our Christian history, that we should never repeat. It's here. This is our history. And so before we say we hate history, remember, this is our history. And this is what Paul is going to appeal to the the church at Corinth, to believers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to believers for all ages. Remember your history and learn from it. Because it matters. Unless you just want to make the same mistakes. And do the same things over and over and over again. A little bit of background before we jump into 1 Corinthians 10 is helpful. Remember in in 8, 9, and 10, Paul here is dealing with one particular question, probably a question that he received from the church at Corinth. Can we eat meat that has been offered to idols? And, And Pastor Andrew did a great job that first week of really helping us understand some of the issues. And this meat, almost all their meat at some point had been offered to idols. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with going to someone's house that serves meat, going to the marketplace and having meat. Some at the church of Corinth said idols are nothing. It doesn't matter. And so they were going to to eat meat at the idols' temples because, hey, it's fresh. It's good meat. And so they were exercising their freedom and their knowledge that this is okay for them. Others at the church of Corinth, their faith was being destroyed by that. 
was, was, it was a, a serious stumbling block, not just an offense, but they would look at that and say, how can you do that? Idols are being worshipped there. And it was causing divide in the church and challenging people's faith. And so Paul has spent three chapters, we've studied two of them, and today's the third chapter. He's, he's spending three chapters on this one issue. Because it's not just about a piece of meat that's been offered wherever it was offered. Paul is dealing with much bigger principles of how do we deal with disputable matters? How do we deal with living in community? With things that may not be explicitly clear in Scripture? And so in chapter 8, the first place Paul went was, do you love your brother? How does this affect your brother was the first question he asked. It's not about your knowledge and what's right for you. It's about how this is showing that you care about each other. And he challenged the strong in that passage to be aware of those that hadn't decided. He called them the weak. Those that were were unsure of their convictions. And that the strong should love them and be willing to give up their rights for them. Then in chapter 9, we spent two weeks on chapter 9, and Paul moves to the second question. It's not just how does this affect my brother, but the next question is how does this affect the gospel? And these are questions we can ask on any gray areas that we're not sure what to do. How does it affect my brother? How does it affect the gospel? Does it hinder it? Does it help it? And it's not just, as we learned last week, it's not just not being an obstacle to the gospel, but how does this help the advance of the gospel? And that really narrows down what we should do because we start to think in terms of how do we advance the gospel? That's what this missions theme is all about. How do we support that? How are we part of that? Well, now in chapter 10, he comes to the last chapter and his last arguments and he comes down to, okay, what about your personal life? The third question to ask with gray areas is how does this affect your spiritual life? What does it open up you up to? Is this an idol? Does this replace your love for God with a love for something else? Because this is just, your rights are so important to you. And so we come to chapter 10 realizing this is a continuum. Context, context, context is so important in understanding Scripture. So will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians? And we'll be studying chapter 10, but I'd like to read the last paragraph of chapter 9 by way of introduction. Because Paul's arguments tend to just flow from one to the other. So let's start in chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And again, the context here of chapter 9 is all about sharing the gospel. How can I be all things to all men that by all means I might save some? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not receive a perishable wreath. But they do it to receive a perishable wreath, I'm sorry. But we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He's saying I don't just randomly do things, but I'm intentional to make sure it's about the cause. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. There's a lot of talk about what that disqualified means there, but if you look at the context, he's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about as a messenger, as an ambassador of the Gospel, I don't want to do anything that disqualifies myself. We talked in our community group, how long does it take to build a reputation, a good reputation? 
Takes years, right? How long does it take to destroy a good reputation? Seconds. Moments. And Paul is saying, I don't want anything to disqualify my ambassadorship for the Gospel. So I discipline myself. I guard against that. Disqualification there also means no longer participating in the rewards, the joys of partnering in the Gospel, of participating in the Gospel, of seeing people come to Christ. And so in chapter 10 here, that last phrase, lest I myself be disqualified, he now expands on that. And he gets personal in his arguments and says, okay, how, what kinds of things can disqualify us? How can we avoid disqualifications? How can we be on guard to walk with Christ in a way that is pleasing to Him, in a way that reflects the Gospel well to others? So we come to chapter 10. And Paul first appeals to history. We'll start with verses 1-5. through Let's read those together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the clouds and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." first five verses, Paul starts his argument in a sobering fashion. And he appeals to their history. And, and the point for us to remember as we talk about avoiding disqualification, going to church, being around Christians, having a rich spiritual heritage does not make you a Christian or guarantee spiritual maturity. Did you catch that? I know it's a long point. Going to church. Being around Christians, having a rich spiritual heritage, a Christian family, does not make you a Christian. And it does not guarantee spiritual maturity or victory over sin. So Paul starts there to challenge their their idea, their pride actually, that they think somehow their status and who they are contributes to who they are in Christ. Let's let's break this down and, and, and... explore this a little bit more. He starts with four, I do not want you to be unaware. And when you see that word four, you know it ties into the last, the last thought. And so this is all about not being disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware. The word unaware in, in some of your translations is translated ignorant. Dumb. I, I don't want you to be ignorant of, of some of these facts. And This is interesting since they were proclaiming themselves to be wise and having all knowledge. And Paul is basically saying, you might have a bit of knowledge. You might have a bit of an understanding, but you're not getting this part of history. So let me remind you. Let me inform you of what is a deeper understanding of how God works and what God wants to do in your lives. They were ignorant of the Old Testament, it looks like, or at least they were not remembering the lessons of the Old Testament and the idolatry that the children of Israel fought and struggled with over and over and over again. Just sort of a a fun thing. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Excuse me. He's talking to mostly Gentiles here. And when he says our fathers, he's reminding them that when we, be, when we accept Christ, we are grafted in as His people. We are adopted sons and daughters of the King. 
And so the Old Testament, that sometimes it's easy to ignore and say, oh, that's just a collection of, of stories, that is our history. Those are our forefathers because we have been spiritually grafted in. And he's reminding them of their true heritage. He goes on to say, our fathers were all under the cloud. And he's referring there to the Exodus. He's, he's coming to one of the most revered moments in, in Israel history when God rescued them from Egypt. He says, all are under the cloud. They're guided. Keep in mind as we look through this, he's, he's, he's helping the Corinthian church understand their relationship with history. And so he's doing some comparisons here. And, and when he talks about under the cloud, he's reminding them that God guided, God directed. He was with the children of Israel. And he's with the, the church at Corinth. He is guided. He is protected. He goes on to say, and all passed through the sea. Referencing his salvation from Egypt at the Red Sea. And when the army was coming and God protected them and, and destroyed the Egyptian army behind them. They passed through on dry land. God miraculously delivered the ancestors. To the church at Corinth, the current equivalent for them would be their salvation. That God rescued them from sin. He goes on to say, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And this, this is a little harder phrase to understand because they didn't practice baptism at the time. But Paul again is, is helping them understand just as we're baptized into Christ which means we are identifying with Christ. They identified with Moses as their leader. They followed Him. They participated in, in the covenant that Moses had that brought from Mount Sinai. So they were baptized or joined with Moses just as we're joined with Christ. And so Paul's making some common ground here. And he's trying to say, you're not that different from those in the past. You experienced so many of the same spiritual blessings. He goes on to say, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Referencing the manna and the quail that God spiritually provided. And, and he's talking about a spiritual provision of food here. The water at the beginning and end of, of the wanderings, we see, we see water coming from a rock and God providing that water. And Paul is reminding them of the rich heritage that they have. God has protected. He has saved he has provided. You've been joined with Him. As part of reminding them, He says, your rock is Christ. or in that rock, And the rock was Christ, but it's part of this comparison. It also reminds us that Christ has always existed. and He was there in the Exodus. He's here now. But the, the point of this passage is they had everything going for them spiritually. Maybe if, if we were to read this, we might say things like, I, I, I've grown up in the church. I've grown up in a Christian home. I have a rich spiritual heritage. And, and it's amazing what they had and what the children of Israel saw. And then verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Now, now Paul is using most in an interesting way here. Because how many people entered the promised land from the Exodus? Two. Caleb and Joshua. Most means everyone else. And the wording there, it's nice to say they were overthrown in the wilderness because it literally means their bodies were scattered all over the wilderness. Scattered all over the desert. 
And so imagine you're hearing this and you're hearing all the spiritual blessings and then Paul says, but most of them died in the desert and their bodies rotted there. What is Paul saying? He's reminding them that their spiritual heritage is not something to rest on. It is not something that makes you spiritual. It is not something that makes you a believer. We can fall just as easily with a strong spiritual background and and spiritual heritage as we can without it. Because the privileged position did not guarantee the promised land. Paul is referencing numbers, and we'll, we'll turn to the Old Testament a lot today. Turn with me to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. Start at verse 22. We'll read some of these verses. Numbers 14, starting at 22. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it but my servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. I will bring into the land I will I will bring into the land into which he went and his his descendants shall possess it. Look down to verse 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me. Say to them as I live declares the Lord what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 year olds and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Sobering history. And, and just in that passage, God is, is, he, he is angry at sin. He is judging sin, the sin of grumbling, the sin of testing God, and we'll, we'll cover some of those. And so we see their punishment was that they were scattered in the wilderness despite experiencing God's grace, despite seeing the Egyptian army completely destroyed at the Red Sea, despite getting up every morning and seeing the cloud and every night seeing the fire that was God's very presence with them. And they still doubted God, challenged Him and grumbled against Him and had to pay the price. All but two. And so what was different what was different that allowed Caleb and Joshua to enter the land? And you get a, you get a hint of that in verse 24 there. When it, when it talks about Caleb, and what does it say? That Caleb's heart was turned to God. He had a different spirit. Not one that said, oh, I don't know if God can handle this, but one that said, God can do anything. Let's go. Let's obey. What do we learn from these five verses? It's not just history. I think we're challenged, just as the church at Corinth was challenged, to not just rest on our past. To not just say, oh look, I've accepted Christ and now I can coast. I've got my fire insurance. I'm good to go. I can do whatever I want. Because that doesn't please God. What pleases God is a a different spirit. A heart that trusts Him. That steps out in faith for Him. That obeys Him. And for those here this morning that are saved, this challenges us that, that we can't just 
rest on our background, but we have to be pursuing God and loving God. This isn't all, this background isn't all that there is to, to following God and dealing with sin. For us, being here at church every week isn't all that there is. Now, it's a good thing, don't get me wrong. But just being here and sitting in the pews without engaging does not make you more spiritual. You can sit here for years and be as stagnant as a rock. Or we can sit here for years and just engage and grow in our walk with God. See, the church at Corinth, part of their argument was, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want now. We have to be careful of that. Don't stop growing. Don't stop thirsting after God. We sang about that this morning. But I also want to just talk to some of you maybe here that have never accepted Christ, that have never repented and turned your life over to God. Sitting here in church doesn't make you a believer. Sitting in a pew doesn't bring salvation. Just like if I go home and sit in my garage, it doesn't make me a car. Right? Sort of an absurd thing. But I can say I'm a Corvette all I want, and I'm not a Corvette. Maybe a little more like a minivan, but... No, I, it doesn't make me a car. I'm just looking stupid sitting in my garage. And, and, and I, I, don't, I, I don't want to minimize going to church because it's commanded and it's awesome and it's how we grow, but that's not how we accept Christ. It's how we grow with Christ after we've accepted Him. We aren't Christians because of our family. God has no spiritual grandchildren. Because mom and dad are saved, because we did family devotions, that doesn't make me a believer. The only thing that makes me a believer, if I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That means I have to repent of my sins and say, Jesus, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And that that sin deserves death. And, and Jesus, thank you so much for dying on the cross in my place and rising again on the third day. Conquering sin. I turn my life over to you. I follow you. Unless you've made that decision, you are not saved. And I want to make that clear because my heart would break if someone sat here for years and went through all the motions and looked like a Christian and then we get to heaven and you're not there. That would tear me up. Know the gospel. Know that we need Jesus. And that is the only way to salvation. Your parents, that doesn't save you. Coming to church doesn't save you. Being good enough doesn't save you. Serving in the church and being as active as you can until your, your, your fingers fall off, that doesn't save you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the message of the first five verses spiritual heritage didn't guarantee their success spiritually. So Paul goes on and he gets into some of the, the history here and we'll look at ver- starting at verse 6, looking at verses 6 through 11. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. 
We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by servants, nor grumble as some of them did. Getting a pattern there? And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul starts by dealing with with apathy based on our past and based on the blessings we received. And the next thing he goes to is don't be ignorant. Curb your appetite for sin by seeing its destruction in others. That's point number two. Don't be ignorant. Curb your appetite for sin by seeing its destruction in others. He starts that passage by saying these things took, took place to be examples for us. Examples are types and and the, the wording there, the idea is an imprint. You know, if you were to take, take a penny or something and press it against your, your hand, your palm of your hand for a minute, what would happen when you pull the penny off? You'd have that imprint, right? It would sort of look like that for a while. That's, the, that's what an example means. That's this word, the Greek word that Paul is using here, is learn this. Let it imprint you. Let it press on you so you don't make the same mistakes. The mark left by blow or a blow or pressure. And so Paul is about to give a number of mistakes that that spiritually blessed generation should have avoided. And he shares very vividly and graphically the consequences for those mistakes. So these are examples. Are we going to learn from them? You know, just by example, I have two by fours. I realize I use a lot of two by fours in examples. I love two by fours. But what if, what if uh, before you left today, I took this two by four and nailed it across the door in the back, okay? And I nail it about this high. And you're going out and you see three people in front of you go like that, okay? No, it didn't hurt. <laughs> and you see three people just whack their head against it and they're, they're out in the breezeway holding their head. What do you do? You duck. What if you don't duck? What does that make you? Short. (laughs) We should learn, right? And if we don't learn, if the fourth person hits it after watching three other people, now you could argue that maybe the second person should have learned. But um, if you keep hitting it, it makes us ignorant of what's happened before. This is not learning from history. This is why history is important. And so Paul says, let's look at some of the two-by-fours of Israel's history. Let's look from where they've banged their head. Sorry, missions team. And he's going to go through four things of their history. Now, there were more, but he picks four that are very specific to the church at Corinth, and I would argue that the church today. What can we learn? And he says, there are examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Some translations say that we might not crave evil as they craved evil. And he's dealing with with our appetite for sin. Sin looks fun sometimes, doesn't it? It looks appealing sometimes. Sometimes because of our our desires. Sometimes because of our pleasure. Sometimes we sin to avoid problems. Lying and and trying to get out of things. Sometimes we sin because we want to get ahead. 
we'll just compromise a little bit at work. We'll just, you know, fudge that contract a little bit. We'll just mess up that, that vendor a little bit. Because it's going to make me look good and I'm going to advance. Sometimes we compromise in, in ways that, that are about our, our, our personal status. And we talk about ourselves and pride gets in the way and, and we always are building ourselves up so we look better in front of other people. Those are evil cravings. And Paul says, let's talk about evil cravings. So in verse 7, it's the first thing he brings up and that's the sin of idolatry. The sin of idolatry. And these are all from Israel's history. He says, and they... Sorry, read the right verse here. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, the people of Israel. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And he's referencing here Exodus 32, 6, and he's quoting it actually. And the scene is Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai and Moses is meeting with God and getting the Ten Commandments. And what did the people do? Remember? The golden calf, I heard that from somewhere, and a lot of rumbling, good job. They, they built a golden calf, they collected all the gold, and they built themselves a god. They built themselves an idol. Now they called it Yahweh, but that didn't matter, it was still an idol. And he quotes Exodus 32.6, which says, And they rose up early the next day, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. So they were worshipping this calf. And they sat down to eat and drink, Food and drink, which keeps coming up. And remember, the question is, can we eat food offered to idols? So the church of Corinth was like, "Uh uh-oh. He's talking about us. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that word for play is that of of ritual, um, ritual revelry. It included a sexual aspect. It included just this whole partying around an idol and everything that that involved. That's what the children of Israel did. So he's dealing with idolatry here. We know from that story that 3,000 men were killed. Moses got some of the faithful said, get your weapons. And they went through the camp and started killing those that had walked away. Idolatry is the first sin he mentions. And idolatry is, is really... I would argue the theme of this whole section. The, and he's gonna, all the rest flow from this. And idolatry is anything that comes between us and God. Anything that we hold is more important than God. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Could be money. Could be status. It could be popularity. It could be work. Could be pleasure. It could be hobbies. But what is more important to us than God? Now, now before we start saying, oh, we're, we're good Christians with a good spiritual heritage, idolatry doesn't apply to us. Remember the first five verses first that says we're all at risk. But idolatry, I would argue, is one of the greatest sins we struggle with. Putting things above God. Idolatry of self. In fact, most of those that I mentioned were about self, weren't they? I am more important than God's Word, His instruction. One author that I read recently said, 
the, one of, one of, they think one of the greatest sources of idolatry in the evangelical church is family. Now don't go out and say Ron, Pastor Ron hates family. It's not what I'm saying. But when family becomes more important than God, it's sin. Interesting to think about idolatry and start to think of ourselves. All week as I've studied this, I've said, God, show me what's more important than you this week. Show me what I have allowed to creep into my life that it replaces you at times. And that's been hard sometimes. Because if you ask it, God will show it. We are a people prone to idols. I am a person prone to idols. And so that's the first thing that is dealt with here is idolatry. You know, questions to, to ask, to, to think of this as how much time do I devote to, to other things? What am I willing to replace God with? What am I willing to replace time with God's people with? And we start to understand a little bit about what's important to us in idolatry. So if we're learning from history, what was the result of their idolatry? 3,000 died. God was angry. In fact, God wanted to wipe them out and Moses intervened. Verse 8, we get to the next one. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So sexual immorality is the second sin that that Paul mentions. And and again, sexual immorality was usually tied with idolatry. It it, it usually was, uh, was accompanied it And I would argue sexual immorality is a form of idolatry, putting our pleasure above God, putting our pleasure above obedience. Turn to Numbers 25. And Paul Paul here is referencing again a very specific incident in um, Jewish history. Numbers 25, and we'll just read a, a couple of verses out of it. If you have time this week, it'd be great to read the whole thing of some of these sections. But the setting is the children of Israel have been seduced by the women of Moab. And so we see in verse 1, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people who began to whore with the daughters of Moab, these invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. They saw, they wanted, they took. And it was sin. Jump down to verse 9. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now Paul says 23,000, and there's all kinds of explanations for that. Quite possibly they were both just rounding. Paul does specify on one day that the numbers account is for the whole time. There's a couple of, of possibilities there. The point that Paul is making is a whole bunch of people died because of their sin. Sin is serious. So Paul says, they fell in idolatry. They fell in sexual immorality. And we can fall in the same ways. In verse 9, he goes to the next one. Challenging God is what I've titled it. Verse 9 says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And he's referring again to a specific incident He's referring to Numbers 21, 5, and 6. And I'll read that for you. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water. 
And we loathe this worthless, worthless food. Who provided the food for them? God. Manna and quail, right? And so they are saying, why did you bring us here, God? You blew it. I don't want to be at this point in my life. I don't want to be in the wilderness. And for that matter, what you provided for me, I hate it. That's testing God. The idea behind testing is to challenge or in a court of law to try to prove false. And so they were trying to disparage God's character and prove that he would, had made a mistake because of self, because they weren't getting what they want. Psalm 78.18 references the same story. It says they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. Again, a plague. Many people died. John references this in John 3.14 when he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And they lifted up a bronze serpent and people would look at it and were saved. Not because the serpent was anything, but it represented a type of Christ. We do this. We test God when we why God. It's sort of my, my term for why in God. Why God? Why am I here? I don't like my circumstances. Why have you allowed me to go through this? And that's testing God. And we all struggle with it. Because we want what we want. And Paul's challenging the church at Corinth, if you're going to live godly in an ungodly world, you've got to trust God. It's the third sin that Paul deals with. Verse 10, the fourth sin that he deals with, the fourth example he uses is that of grumbling. He goes on to say, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Children of Israel grumbled a lot. There's some debate, okay, where does this actually refer to? Because they grumbled a lot. And there are all kinds of examples of their grumbling. I think the best, best possibility is number 16. And again, it's a great, great story to read, a challenging story to read. But we know that Korah got a couple of his friends together and they were grumbling against God. And more specifically, they were grumbling against the leaders that God had set up. So they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And one of their arguments was, we can do this as well as they can. They don't really know what they're doing. But God set them there. And so they grumbled, and, and, and in this, this event, there became this, this showdown between God and, and Korah and his friends, and, and the showdown ended pretty quickly because the earth ate them. And the earth swallowed them. And then fire came down and destroyed the people that were worshiping falsely under Korah. And then those that still followed them, because the next day, it says, children of Israel came back and complained again. Now, Okay, this is a two-by-four moment. If you just saw the day before someone complain and the earth ate them, don't complain the next day. And, and that chapter says, the next day they complained. And so God sent a plague and 14,700 more were killed. Do you think God takes sin seriously? Absolutely. That's learning from history. It's sort of shocking for me that grumbling is in here. 
We have idolatry. We have sexual immorality. We have challenging God. Those are biggies. Grumbling? That's just something we like to do. Grumbling is challenging God. It's idolatry, actually, of self. Because now I'm putting my desires and my interests above God's. Richard Sibbs wrote this about grumbling. Satan has most advantage of discontented persons as most agreeable to his disposition, being the most discontented creature under heaven. Think about that. It's basically saying he has the most advantage with people that are discontent or grumbling because that's matching his character. Will we learn from examples? He just gives four here. But all that deal with idolatry and elevating self, or will we keep running our heads into the two by four? Will we make sure nothing is more important than God? Will we make sure that purity, as we've already talked about, is, is primary because we are joining ourselves with God and we don't want to join ourselves in impure situations? Will we make sure that we are not challenging God and discontent with our circumstances? Because God is able to use whatever circumstances we're going through for His glory. How dare I say, you did it wrong, God. And grumble about it. Will we learn? I can still remember, just after my my junior high year, 8th grade year, going into high school that summer, watching a situation unfold before me where someone that I knew just completely walked away from God and destroyed their life and destroyed so, much, so many lives around them. And I still remember the, the circumstances and, and I can remember the day and where I was standing and what I was seeing because at that moment I, I, I vowed to God I will not go down that path. I will not do that thing that I had observed. And that became a mile marker for me, a, a, a signpost that kept me from certain things in my life. I'd love to say I've done that in every area of life, but that's just one example, and I haven't. I've struggled at times, because we all struggle with sin. But that's one example where we're doing something like this and learning from history and learning from others that pound their head in the two-by-four can save us a lot of grief. So Paul goes on, point number three there, beware of overconfidence. We need help to stand. Beware of overconfidence. We need help to stand. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Paul comes back to a church that was overconfident, to a church that was really quite full of themselves at times and didn't think they would fall. In the, in the situation with meat offered to idols, they were saying, yeah, we can go in temples. It doesn't bother us. And Paul says, be careful. You think you stand. You're confident in that. You're confident in yourself. Take heed lest you fall. He's dealing with pride here of self. And he goes on to to one of my favorite verses, a wonderful promise, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And the word for temptation there, some of your translations use test, some use trials. It's all the same word. The Greek word is the same. And 
And so this is far more than just being tempted to sin. This is situations you go through. This is trials we go through. And the promise here is that, first of all, nothing you're going through is new. Other people have gone through it. God has helped them overcome it. He can help you overcome it. And then a promise that God is faithful. He's proven Himself over and over throughout all of history. He will not let you be tempted or tested above your ability or beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. People at Corinth might have been saying, okay, you're saying I have to be really careful of all these sins. I don't know how in this fallen world. I'm getting invites to temple celebrations all the times and birthday parties at temples and all these things. I I can't even do business if I don't do this. You're asking me to do things I cannot do. And Paul reminds them, oh no, our God is greater than all those things. And with His help, this is saying God won't give you more than you can handle with His help. With His help. What an incredible promise that we can cling to. The last point, verses 14 through 22 flee idolatry, it is demonic. Sort of reword that for us. Don't let anything at all become more important than God. It opens the door for Satan. If anything supersedes our love for God, that is an open door for Satan to come in and and grab our hearts and to, to tempt us and to get sin into our lives. And so Paul starts in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run from it. Stay as far away from it as you can. Keep in mind, they're talking about meat offered to idols. And Paul is saying, stay as far away as you can. Now, it's an interesting contrast here. He's just said, God will help you handle anything. But then his very next thing is, run. Be smart about it. Run from it. Flee from it. I think Jenny posted something on Facebook this week. We can put that up there. Guy sitting on a cliff. When we have nothing left but God, we discover that God is enough. That is so true, isn't it? He is able to to bring us through temptation. But we still shouldn't sit on cliffs. That's just dumb. (laughs) Don't test God. That's testing God. How does God help us through? He says to run. (laughs) And to stay away. What a great illustration of that. Let me read these verses as we close. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. He's appealing to them. And he appeals with three different meals to understand relationships here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the first illustration of a meal he gives is communion, the Lord's Supper. It's like when you take Lord's Supper, it's part of your worship, you are actually building a communion with God. Fellowship is the word that's used here, koinonia. An identification with God and because we're one body, an identification with each other. So that's his first point. They'd be like, yeah, that's, that's what we love about the Lord's Supper. Now he's going to teach on that in the next chapter. Then he goes on to verse 18, the second illustration. Consider the people of Israel. 
Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And he's referring to people who would, would bring a sacrifice, a sin offering or a thanks offering, and they would, the priest would offer some of it, and then they would eat some of it there in the presence of the priest. The priest would eat some, the people would eat some. And remember, meals, eating together was a sign of fellowship in their culture. And so for them then to eat part of that offering was a sign that we are restored in relationship with God. Isn't that beautiful imagery that God gave them? He's like, offer your sacrifice. It's paid for. Now now let's eat together. Because things are right between you and God. And so Paul is saying, again, there's a participation. There's an identification with. And then he goes to verse 19. And he hits them. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? That was the argument Pastor Andrew talked about in chapter 8. They were saying, idols are just hunks of wood. So it doesn't matter if I eat in front of idols. And Paul now turns it and says, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And so Paul, at the end of his arguments, his appeals of saying, watch out for your brother and watch out for your gospel, his last appeal is, you are opening the door for Satan. This actually isn't a gray area. This is an area that you are allowing Satan hold in your life. Now he's speaking very specifically to meals and temples. And and he's saying if you are eating in a situation where a deity other than God is being worshipped, you are identifying with them just like communion did, just like the sacrifice does. Be careful what you open your lives to. See, for them, living in an ungodly world was normal. And they had lost sight of what godly behavior would be. They had lost sight of cultural normals that are actually contrary to Scripture. Now, in the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to give some examples that are gray areas and that are different. But when it comes to actually going in the temple, no. For us, you're you're probably not going to go into a temple this week. But how many times do we agree with and let things go in our culture that are contrary to Scripture without even realizing it? Without even knowing it? How many times do we let idolatry rule and something become more important than God? When anything becomes more important to God in your life, Satan can work. If you go away with anything today, go away with that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that You would help us flee from idolatry from any part of us that is committed to self, committed to what I want, to where I'm even willing to overlook what it's doing to me spiritually and what Your Word teaches. Lord, I pray for our church that this week You would expose idols. Even if it's painful, even if it hurts, that You would challenge us to put You first And then watch in amazement what you do, God. 
Lord, purify us. Keep us clean before you. In Jesus' holy name.